For the past several weeks, we have been studying through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Today, we have come to chapter number three, and I would like to give an outline or an overview of that chapter. In verses 1 through 11, Paul presents himself as an accountant. And the challenge that he is issuing to us is that we assess or we evaluate our lives. In fact, one of the words he uses means to evaluate or to assess. It was Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living, and yet many of us never pause long enough to examine our lives to see how we are doing as the children of God. So in verses 1 through 11 of that chapter, he is the accountant. In verses 12 through 16, he presents himself as an athlete. And there Paul is saying, I am running a race. He said, I am following after the Lord. I am pressing forward. So he presents himself there as an athlete. In verses 17 through 21, he is an alien. He is a citizen of heaven who is living on this earth. And so in those verses, he speaks to us about our heavenly citizenship. It seems to me in this book that Paul is primarily concerned that the Christian do not lose his or her joy. You see, as a follower of Christ, we are to be joyful people. And Paul is concerned that certain things happen to us that takes from us our joy. For instance, in chapter number 1, he is saying that sometimes circumstances take our joy away. Sometimes we face difficulties in life. We face difficult circumstances. And the result is that we can lose our joy. The solution, he says, is the single mind. That I focus on Christ regardless as to what my circumstances might be. In chapter number 2, he said sometimes people can steal our joy. That people do things, they say things, and as a result of that, we lose our joy. The solution is to have a submissive mind that I simply submit myself to God regardless as to what people say or do. In chapter number 3, he says that things can steal our joy. And the solution to that is to have a spiritual mind. Now then, I want us to begin today as we come to chapter number 3 in verse number 1. So look with me there, please. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Now, as Paul comes to this chapter, he does so with a reminder there in verse number 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So Paul here is telling them something that he has told them before. He is preaching a message that he has preached before. S.M. Lockridge, the powerful preacher from San Diego once said, a sermon that is not, preaching, or not worth preaching twice is not worth preaching once. Now, the struggle that the preacher has is, how can I get you to listen? You see, there are some things that need to be emphasized. There are some things that you need to take seriously. How does the preacher get you to listen? To really hear them. Now, I read the story about a young preacher who wanted to be a good preacher, and there was an older pastor who had come to that town to hold a revival, and so the young preacher thought, I will go and hear him, and maybe I can pick up some pointers from him. So he went. When it was time for the older preacher to preach, he stood up and began with the opening statement, some of the most memorable, enjoyable times of my life have been spent in the arms of another man's wife. Well, immediately everyone tuned in. The deacons woke up, the people were listening, the choir was paying attention, everyone paid attention. He goes on with his message, and then after a while... He explains that the woman of reference was his father's wife, his mother. Well, the young preacher was so impressed with that. He said, what a wonderful way to get the people's attention. When I go home next Sunday, I'm going to try it. So he went home the next Sunday, and it's time to preach. He stands in the pulpit, and he begins his message by saying, some of the most memorable, enjoyable moments in my life have been spent in the arms of another man's wife. And he went blank. And he stood there and he thought and he stammered and he thought and he stammered. And then he said, and for the life of me, I can't remember whose wife she was. <laughs> there are some things we need to remember. There are some things that need to be emphasized. But how do we get your attention? You see, we need always to remember our purpose. Why did God call us together? And before Jesus went back to heaven, He spoke to His disciples and gave to the church the Great Commission. And He said, it is our job, it is our responsibility, it is our calling, it is our task 
to share the good news of Jesus Christ in the world. Folks, we've just about forgotten that. Very seldom do we reach out to those who are lost. But everything is for us. It is for our enjoyment. It is for our edification. We have become very self-centered. We must never forget our purpose to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We must never forget His promise of His presence. He has said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And my friend, regardless as to what you're going through today, regardless as to the challenges you face today, if you're a child of God, He has promised never to leave you. He is right there with you. He is by your side. He will see you through. We need to be reminded of His presence that He has promised never to leave us. We need to emphasize and be reminded of His power because the Scripture says, Greater is He who is within than he who is of the world. If you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And the Bible says, Greater is He than the world. He gives you the power to live for God. He gives you the power to overcome your circumstances. He gives you the power to be victorious. You must never forget that, that God's power is available to you. We must never forget His provision. He has promised to meet our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There are some things we must emphasize and you must listen to. Now, Paul gives a command there in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. What he is saying is, remember these truths that you might rejoice in the Lord. Now, you will notice that he did not use the word happiness. We talk a lot about being happy, but happiness is based on circumstances. When my circumstances are favorable, then I am happy. He did not use the word happiness. He used the word joy. Boys said, what is joy? Joy is a supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. Joy is an inner quality of delight in God or gladness, and it is meant to spring up within the Christian in a way totally unrelated to the adversities or circumstantial blessings of this life. Rejoice in the Lord. What he is saying is remember the, the truths of God's Word that you might rejoice in the Lord. Peter said something similar in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Peter is saying you know these truths. You know about the power of God. You know about the presence of God. You know about the provision of God. You know those things. But you need to be reminded of them. He said, you are established in the truth. Barnes says, that is the truth which is with you or which you have received. If you are a child of God, he said, you know the Word of God and you are established in the truth of God's Word that it is present within you. But I remind you of it. I remind, that's what Paul is saying in verse number one. I want to remind you of some things. And it's important that you don't forget them. You see, here's Paul's concern. He wanted to remind them of the truth of God's Word because he was concerned 
that false teachers come into the church and lead them away from the truth, and as a result, they lose their joy. So in verse number 2, he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, when he says, Beware of the dogs, he is probably speaking about the same group, the Judaizers, the dogs, the false circumcision, the evil workers, a reference probably to the Judaizers who were a group of legalists who taught that to have a relationship with God was dependent upon keeping the law, that I'm saved by grace, but to have a relationship to God, I must keep the law. Paul is not very complimentary of this group of people who say such things. He referred to them as dogs. Now, that's not necessarily a negative term to us because we love our dogs. I love my dog. And I know that Linda loves him, too. Maybe not as much as I do, but we love our dogs. And so we don't think of that as a negative term. But Barnes wrote, the Jews call the heathen dogs and the Mohammedans call Jews and Christians by the same name. The term dog is used to denote a person that is shameless, impudent, malignant, snarling, dissatisfied, and contentious, and is evidently so employed here. The reference here is doubtless to Judaizing teachers. So when he refers to them as dogs, he is speaking of their character. And then he refers to them as evil workers, which speaks of their conduct. Gromacki said they were working for their own salvation and they attempted to influence others to accept legalism as an additional requirement with faith as the grounds for divine acceptance. The teaching of salvation by works is called evil because it ignores the sufficiency of Jesus. When we say that we are saved by the works that we do, then we are saying that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient. He refers to them as the false circumcision, which speaks of their creed. You see, for them, circumcision had become the means of salvation, not a symbol of salvation. I know sometimes that happens with people concerning baptism. I'll ask a person, are you a Christian? And many times I've had people to reply, well, I was baptized when I was 12, or I was baptized in such and such church. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you were baptized, but that really is not the question. You see, baptism is a symbol of salvation, but it is not salvation. This ring is a symbol of what? Of marriage. Am I still married? Yeah, because the ring is not marriage. It symbolizes marriage. Well, that's what baptism is. It symbolizes salvation, but it is not salvation. So Paul gives a reminder as to who we are there in verse number 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Paul says, we, we who have put our faith in Christ, we are the true circumcision. Barnes says the real design of circumcision was attained by those who had been led to renounce the flesh and who had devoted themselves to the worship of God. He said, we worship in spirit. Folks, I do wish we could understand, and many of you do, but I wish we could understand as the church of God. That worship is not so much about form as it is about the heart. It's not about the songs we sing or the songs we don't sing. It is about the Spirit. When Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, he said to her in John chapter 4, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You see, we can come to, to church on Sunday morning and have a perfectly formatted program and follow it meticulously, but it's not about that. It's about the heart. It's about the spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He says that we glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, he is saying our glory is not in circumcision, but Jesus. Our glory is not in our denomination, but Jesus. Our glory is not in our programs, but Jesus. He says, we glory in Christ Jesus. He is our glory. Paul goes on to say, I have no confidence in the flesh. Fanny Crosby wrote, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. And that's what Paul is saying here. He said, I have no confidence in religious rites, though he was circumcised the eighth day, according to Jewish law. He said, I have no confidence in religious pedigree, though he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He said, I have no confidence in religious orthodoxy, though he was a Pharisee. He said, I have no confidence in religious zeal, though he was a persecutor of the church. And so Paul then presents himself as an example of faith. I have no confidence in these things that I've done, but he said, I'm a man of faith. And we see that faith in his relationship to Israel in verse number 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was born an Israelite, but I was born again a child of God. We see it in his relationship to the law in verse number 5b, as to the law of Pharisee. He said, I was born under the law, but I was born again by grace. We see it in his relationship to Israel's enemies in verse number 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He said, I persecuted the church, but then I became a preacher of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, beware false teachers. Beware false teachers, those who are dogs, evil workers, false circumcision. Those who would lead you away from the grace of Jesus, be aware of. Paul turned away from what he had been to embrace grace. Carson wrote here then, Paul exposes his fundamental values. On one side stands everything the world has to offer, including the privileged world of learned and disciplined Judaism. 
On the other side stands Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul insists that there is no contest. Jesus and the righteousness from God that Jesus secures are incomparably better. Now, he acknowledges what is lost in verse number 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, he is saying that to become a follower of Jesus, there are some things that will have to be given up. The word counted loss is in the perfect tense. It means that I have counted it as loss and I continue to count it as lost. What would it cost you if you became a follower of Jesus? Because a lot of times all we say is just come give your heart to Jesus and it's downhill and shady from that point on. The only problem is it's not what the Bible teaches. What would it cost you to become a follower of Jesus? Well, it might cost you your reputation. It did Paul because Paul had a, an admirable reputation before he became a follower of Christ. In Acts chapter 22, verse number 3, he gives this testimony. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Paul had a reputation as being a scholar. He said, I was educated by Gamaliel, who was one of the most respected rabbis of the time. He said, I sat at his feet. I was educated by him. It is believed that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a man of power, a man of position. But he said, I counted it all lost. He said, I gave it up. Counted it as garbage. Could be that if you become a follower of Jesus, it will affect your reputation. What is your reputation? Well, I'm really cool. All the kids at school think I'm cool. I'm the one who's able to get the drugs. I'm the one who is able to get the alcohol. Or it might be that, you know, everyone recognizes that I'm a great businessman or I'm a great businesswoman and money is the thing that is of interest to me. I made a lot of money. Could be that you have to give that up if you become a follower of Christ. Following Christ might be contrary to your heritage. It was to Paul. He was a Jew, a Pharisee. He turned away from that to become a follower of Jesus. I had a guide over in Israel. His name was Yehuda. Yehuda was the son of an Orthodox rabbi, but he became a Christian. And as a result of him becoming a Christian, he was rejected by his family. They treated him as if he were dead because he became a follower of Jesus. I, I simply say those things to say to you that, ladies and gentlemen, to become a follower of Jesus Christ costs something. Something is expected of you if you become a follower of Christ. But what is gained? Now, Paul is an accountant here. And so he looks at the losses over on this side, and he looks at the profits over on this side. And Paul says the ledger looks a whole lot better over here. 
I might have to give this up over here, but what do I gain over here? He said, I gain the knowledge of Christ. Look at verse number 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse number 10, that I may know Him. Paul wanted to know Jesus. If I become a follower of Christ, what do I gain? He says, I gain the knowledge of Christ. He didn't just want to know the history of Jesus. And there are some of you who know the history of Jesus. You, you know where he was born. You know the names of his mother and his father. You know how he died. You, you know the history of Jesus. But Paul said, I don't want to just know his history. I want to know him. I've gained knowledge of Christ, the righteousness of Christ in verse number 9, and may be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Previously, Paul had tried to be righteous, and some of you are probably doing that. But he came to understand that when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to me. And now then I have become righteous, not because I am righteous, but because I have His righteousness. What do I gain? The righteousness of Christ. The power of His resurrection, verse number 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. If we really believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it brings incredible power. I look at the disciples, and before, they, before the resurrection, they responded in a cowardly way. When Jesus was arrested, they fled. When Jesus was crucified, only John went to the cross. But after the resurrection, they went out to turn the world upside down because of the power of the resurrection. If you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have incredible power. The fellowship of his suffering. In verse number 10, he says, in the fellowship of his suffering. Paul suffered. He was in prison. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He suffered as a follower of Christ, and we do as well. And folks, let me say to you, when you suffer, don't waste it. Because God can use your suffering. When someone has gone through... The suffering of cancer, there is no one who can minister and encourage someone who is going through the suffering of cancer like you. If you've been through a divorce, there is no one who can encourage someone else going through a divorce like you. If you have been an alcoholic, a drug addict, and Jesus has changed your life, there's no one who can encourage others going through the same thing like you. Don't waste it. Paul says there in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. The promise is if we die with him, we live with him. It was towards the end of the 19th century, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel woke up to read his own obituary in the newspaper. His obituary said, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. Well, the truth is, it was his brother who had died, not him. But he was profoundly affected by that obituary. And so as a result of that, he established the Nobel Prize, the award for scientists and writers 
who foster peace. Nobel said every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. That's what Jesus does for us. He gives you the opportunity to correct your epitaph in midstream and write a new one. Would you allow him to do that in your life today? Our gracious Father, we come to a time when we consider our lives. We evaluate, assess it. And I pray, Lord, for those who examine their lives and determine, I really don't know Jesus. I know his history, but I don't know him. And I pray today, Father, that they might give their lives to you. I pray, Father, for Christians who are going through the motions but not taking their commitment to you seriously. Some who have been led astray by legalism and other things and have lost their joy. Some who are trying to live the Christian life on their own when they need a church family. Lord, I pray today that during this invitation time we'll be obedient to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand, sing a hymn of invitation. Well, what will you do? What would God have you do? Would you examine your life? Would you do that today? Evaluate your life? Would you do that today? What would you do? I'm going to ask if you're here without Christ that you come to make a commitment to Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings, you come, I'll preach you.